Uh, Grab your Bible and go with me to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. We continue our journey through this short book, four chapters. And I have enjoyed my study and enjoyed preaching to you. You might not have gotten anything out of it, but I have, okay? And uh, if you're a guest today, we're walking verse by verse through this book. We, We are a Bible church, and you might say, well... Uh, aren't all churches Bible churches? Well, okay. Uh, we believe in teaching the Bible, preaching through the Bible, line upon line, verse upon verse. And so we, we believe in preaching the text, letting the text speak for itself, and then applying it to our lives. And we happen to be in the middle of a series right now entitled, It's All About Jesus, a walk through uh, the book of Colossians. Let me make a couple of announcements before we move on. Uh, next Sunday, you're going to have a small ballot to affirm some men uh, to assume leadership roles in the church that you have uh, brought before the leadership ministry team uh, as uh, deacons and members of our leadership team. Uh, Brother Stan McGraw. Brother Stan teaches um, uh, the apologetics class, his wife, Miss Rhonda. Uh, Brother Stan's also on security and does a variety of other things. Uh, Brother Dave Stark. Uh, Brother Dave is in here somewhere. I didn't see Brother Stan. Brother Dave's over here to my left. Uh, he is, uh, has been a teacher uh, before in the church, and so he is going to assume a role, as well as Brother David Rainey. Brother David is uh, taking over the Operation Christmas Child. He was in the first service today, and so he's in charge of all of that and the distribution. As the video said a minute ago, if you'd like to help him uh, with that ministry, he would love to sign you up and give you a time to serve. And so these three men are going to assume leadership roles uh, on our leadership ministry team. And as our Constitution and bylaws say, uh, the leadership team, the pastor and the deacons, the staff, uh, we receive the nominations, we interview, we go through a process, and then we allow the congregation to affirm them, and you'll have that opportunity uh, next Sunday. In case you didn't know, uh, I am leading, Misty and I are leading a trip to Israel next year. Uh, at the moment, we have about eight slots left, okay? Eight slots left. If you have any interest in going with us, uh, please stop by and pick up a uh, brochure out in the lobby. Uh, we're actually having a meeting this Thursday night at our home uh, for those that are planning to go. If you're interested to go and would like to join in with that, uh, we'll be leaving on February the 24th and we'll be back on March the 5th. Uh, this is actually my fourth time to go uh, to Israel and I can't wait to get back there again uh, to see the sites and to open up our Bible and to see where certain things happen and, and where Jesus taught. It's an amazing journey. If uh, you have any interest in doing that, please let us know and we'd love to get you signed up and headed in that direction. Brother Joe mentioned that today was Miss Karen's birthday. We need to mention that Friday was his birthday, all right? And so happy birthday. Brother Joe's mom and dad are here celebrating with him this weekend. It's good to see y'all, and I know y'all have had a good time eating cake and partying, all right? So if you see Brother Joe, let him know happy birthday. Colossians chapter 2 will begin in verse number 8 in just a moment. I'm preaching to you a message I've entitled, The Battle for truth. The battle for truth. I looked this up this week. The longest war that's ever been fought, humanly speaking, was the Iberian religious wars that lasted 781 years. 
from 711 to 1492. It was a series of battles fought between the Christian kingdoms and the Muslim Moors over the control of the Iberian Peninsula. The longest battle that's ever been fought or recorded was fought on the border of France and Germany known as the Battle of Verdum in the middle of World War I. At this battle, lasting from February the 4th until the month of December, there were around 300,000 casualties. This little area, this city, medieval city called Verdum, was identified as a strategic city that both sides wanted. And so both sides of the war ramped up and they were totally committed to winning the battle at all costs. When the battle ended, history records for us, there were over 20 million artillery shells fired. That's 1.7 million tons of metal that they lobbed at each other. By the time the battle ended, history says that in spite of the high casualties, both sides basically ended up right where they started, neither of them gaining any ground. When you think about battles... You have your head in the sand if you don't know that Christians today are engaged in a battle that has lasted much, much longer than that war or that battle. That battle has been going on through the centuries. And and I would guess that many of us at certain times in our life have asked the question, are we gaining any ground? Are we losing ground? Are, are we advancing at all? And unfortunately, in this battle that is going on, we have seen some casualties. The battle is pictured in Ephesians chapter 6. And this battle is not fought by flesh and blood, but it's fought by principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness. The battle that I'm talking about is is raging red hot today. And that battle is over the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same questioning that was going on in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came up to Adam and Eve and asked the question, hath God said... Did did God really say? That same questioning is going on today. Here are the questions in 2019. Is the Bible sufficient? Is the gospel sufficient? Is the gospel relevant for this day and this age? Some people ask, is the gospel of Jesus Christ really, is it really exclusive? I mean, is there, is there only one way to eternal life? Is there only one way to the Father? Pastor, why do we, why do we have to be so dogmatic about this? Don't we have some wiggle room that others might find their way to God and not go the Jesus way? Let me simply answer that by saying no. Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And last Sunday in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I made a statement. I don't know if you caught it. But I said those two short verses are so foundational for the rest of the book because it's like 
In Colossians 2, 6, and 7, there is a shift in direction, and it lays the foundation really for the message today and the message next Sunday. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Satan is firing rounds of ammunition at the church. He's firing rounds of ammunition at the truth of the gospel. Verses 8 through 15 in Colossians, the battle is going on in the church at Colossae. I remind you that over and over and over in the New Testament, there is a warning to remain in the truth. To remain. To not change the truth. To not explain away the truth. Let me make another statement to you. Regardless of what you might learn in in college or learn in reading, learning in the secular world by popular books that are being written today, truth is not subjective. Truth is not relative. You don't get to decide what truth is. I don't get to decide what truth is. It certainly is not based on my feelings and it's not based on what I think. My Bible says that truth is forever settled in heaven. And Jesus in his earthly ministry went as far as saying that not one jot or one tittle will ever pass away. That's that King James language that says not the dotting of an I, not the crossing of a T, not the period of a comma will ever pass away from the truth of God's word. You do know there's a battle for truth today, right? It's, it's, not, it's not something new. It's not something that just started It's going on right here in the birth of the church at Colossae. And Paul now turns from being rooted and anchored and established in Christ to now painting a broader picture of what's going on in and around the church at Colossae. Look in your Bible as Paul challenges these Christians. I want to play off of that first phrase in verse number 8. He encourages them to see four things in the text. Here we go. In verse number eight, he first of all says, I want you to see the confusion that the devil loves. Look at it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So Paul challenges them with a challenge that you and I need today. It's this. We need to stay alert and always know that Satan is lurking with his error while truth is being taught. The devil is calculated. The devil is constantly scheming. Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 6 that you and I need to be alert to the wiles, the scheming of the devil. He's always scheming. He's always working at attacking the truth of God's word. And Paul says to these Christians, don't get kidnapped. Don't get 
carried away into heresy. It's the only place in the New Testament where this phrase, takes you captive, is used. He's saying that people in and around the church, they can potentially get snatched away into false doctrine. The challenge is this. The challenge is that, that it, without us being alert and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and enabling us to see truth, the challenge is, is that we all could believe in something as truth that is inherently false. How many of you know that eloquence has ensnared many a man? And many a woman. You know why? Because words matter. And words can capture our heart and our mind. And the real battle that's going on today in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual warfare realm, in the battle for truth, it's really being fought in our hearts and in our minds. You have to be careful. Because appealing words in a moment can sound good. Appealing words in a moment can sound accurate. Appealing words in a moment can sound like truth because appealing words are such a powerful tool. And I would add that some do it better than others. How many of you know some people are just captivating to listen to? Captivating. Like, man, they're so eloquent. They speak so well. They speak so so assuredly they speak so so factually when not every person that makes a good statement or a good argument or has a popular teaching is necessarily following truth look back in chapter 2 verse number 4 you remember a couple of weeks ago we we read paul said i'm i'm challenging you i'm saying this to you in order that No one deludes you with plausible arguments. How many of you hear arguments today that humanly sound good, but you know they defy the Bible? People make statements and they... And they say, you know, this just makes way too much sense, doesn't it? And then you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute, that's not what God has said. And Paul says, if you're not careful, you will get swept away by words. Words that that the devil uses to plant seeds of doubt in your mind. Words that are twisted. The truth is twisted. Subjective words that are given as fact. Everyone knows that the best ice cream on the market is bluebell vanilla bean. And that's it. As a matter of fact, they ought to just throw the rest of it away. It's, it's all a waste of time. There, there, is, there is no ice cream that's ever been made or ever will be made that even compares to bluebell vanilla bean ice cream. Can I get a witness? False. Now, how many of you know I might like vanilla bean ice cream, but that's just my opinion? Yeah, we could get into research and we could look at dollar sales and we could say which one's sold the most. But I know in this room, some of you believe that Briar's Chocolate Rocky Road with Almonds is straight from heaven. 
Now, I'm giving you an illustration today that's kind of silly to say all of that is subjective, right? That's all opinion. When it comes to truth, truth is not open for our opinions. What God has said, he has said. And so Paul is warning them, if you're not careful, you'll be kidnapped into a philosophy that is vain, it is empty, it is hollow, and it has no foundation. I'm so glad today to know that my life has a foundation, that what I believe has a foundation, that I'm not going to get up in the morning and think about what I feel. I'm going to get up in the morning and know what God has said. Because his word is forever settled in heaven. But if you're not careful, you'll get swept away, Paul said. You'll get get captivated by words that have no basis. What else do people get captivated by? Kidnapped, snatched away. Notice he also warns them about something, this is important, that brings confusion into the arena of truth. Something that brings confusion into the arena of truth. Here it is. Look in your Bible, verse number 8. It's called human tradition. I was having lunch a few years ago with a pastor of another denomination. And as we were sitting there discussing things, he said to me, he did his hands just like this, and he said, we hold the scriptures equal to the traditions of the church fathers. And I very politely headbutt. No, I didn't do that. I said, that's interesting. I said, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what my problem that I have with that in my spirit. Here it is. There is no man that is perfect except Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. No man is perfect. Man is fallible. In case you didn't know, Pastor Tim is fallible. I'm a flesh tank. Okay? And so was Every single one of the church fathers, no matter how many volumes were written about them and their life, they were all sinners that needed a Savior, and not everything that they taught and wrote was inspired. Only the Bible is inspired. Amen, Pastor Tim. Only the Bible. I'm not inspired. I'm not perfect. Only Christ. Only the Bible is perfect. So let me ask you a question. You might have grown up with some traditions of the church fathers. There might be some things in your life that you're, you strongly hold on to or you believe. At the end of the day, it's only the subjective opinion of a man or a woman. So let me ask you a very direct question. Here it is. Do you love Jesus? And do you desire the truth of the Bible? Do you desire the truth that comes from God that you learn right here in the Holy Scriptures that contradicts maybe what your parents taught you or what your grandparents taught you or what your favorite minister taught you? Do you love Jesus Do you love the scripture enough to say, I must obey Christ more than man? Listen to me. There is nothing wrong with Christian tradition. Nothing. As long as our Christian traditions come from God and not 
from man. Man-made tradition is not equal to the Holy Scriptures. Just because something was given through you, maybe generationally or through your family or through tradition, it does not make it truth. I was reading John MacArthur this week and he said this, tradition usually serves merely to perpetuate error. I think that's so true. When we talk about our tradition, well, I've always, I've always felt this way or this is how I learned it or whatever. You know what? When you start discussing those things, most of the time you will never even crack your Bible. You don't go talk about a particular verse or a passage. When you can't do that, you know you're talking about traditions. You're talking about something that came from man. You know what Jesus constantly warned the Jews about in the Gospels? Read it for yourself. What did he warn them about? He said to them, your human tradition will keep you from God's best. Your human tradition will keep you from knowing the Messiah. Can't you see how it all fits together? The Jews rejected him, right? They're looking for him, looking for him, looking for the Messiah. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? Jesus comes and their human tradition blinds them from seeing him. Oh man, I could preach an hour on this. I could preach an hour on this. Francis Schaeffer, modern day writer, theologian said, man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. You can't begin with yourself and arrive at ultimate reality. You know why? Because truth does not originate with man's ideas or feelings. It originates with God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to be alert. We need to be alert to see the deception that comes from the elemental spirits of the world. And I don't, I'm not going to drill down on this. Hopefully you can uh, in your uh, connect groups and your small groups. We're going to do it tonight in ours. We're going to talk a little bit more about the elemental spirits of the world and whether that be angels or demons or whether that just means humanity teaching and leading people away from the gospel, from truth. Here's what we know. Regardless, it is not according to Christ. So Paul says, see the deception. Number two, look in verses 9 and 10. What does he want them to see? This battle for truth. He wants them to see the true Christ. The true Christ. Verse number 9. For in him. Who is him? Who? For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just stop there for a minute and let that marinate in your soul. And let me declare once again what has been preached by ministers for 2,000 years. Jesus Christ is God. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse number 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The God-man, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and he dwelt among us bodily. You know what the Gnostics were trying to say? They were trying to attack the deity of Christ. 
Oh, listen, it's still going on today. It's going on today. It's going on right here in this town. It's going on in our country. It's going on across the world. And let me just say, if you're a guest today, we adamantly and strongly, we have no wiggle room. We are not going to change. We are a Trinitarian church. We believe in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And we believe that Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God, but He is God. And so when some use the name Jesus, they try to, they try to use Him, but take away His deity. They try to use Him, but say, well, he, he's, not, he's not God. He's just an expression of God. The same, uh, same with the Holy Spirit. As I read and study my Bible, it is crystal clear to me, not because I received it from man, but because I received it from God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the God-man. And He came and moved in our neighborhood and dwelt among us. You got to see the true Christ. What, let me ask you, why is it important to see the true Christ? I'm told when you work in a bank and you're constantly alerted about being cheated or people trying to pass off fake money. I think we mentioned that last week in Liberia. They got a big problem over there. Fake money's in circulation. I'm told that the way you're trained in a bank, when you're handling money, how do you know that you have the real thing in your hand? You're trained to get the feel of the real thing. You're not given counterfeits to feel. You're given the real thing to feel over and over and over. And you're trained to feel and to know, hey, hey, this is the real thing, right? Why am I here today in a Baptist church where most of you have heard this, uh, many of you have heard this your whole life. Why is it so important for me to remind you that Jesus is God? I'll tell you why. John, the apostle in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 18, warned them. He said, many of you are looking for the Antichrist. Man, I've met people through the years in church Hey, do you think he's the Antichrist? Hey, what do you think? You know, this thing's shaping up. You know, if you look at, if you put this and this and this together, she might be the Antichrist. And John is addressing this among Christian believers. And you know what he says? I know, verse 18, look in your Bible. 1 John 2, 18. I know you're looking for the Antichrist, but then he comes right back and says, but you better wake up because now there are many Antichrists. Little Antichrist, people who are teaching and subverting people away from the Jesus of the Bible. May we always stand strong for the deity of Jesus Christ without apology. Verse number 10, it's Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. For Christians and believers, we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Look at me. When you go out of here and you're out in the community and you're interacting with people and you're evangelizing and, and, and you're on your job, please, please hear me. When you say, oh, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, what you're saying is Jesus is ruling and reigning in my life. He's not just your monopoly get out of hell card. He is the Lord of your life. 
He has filled you. He lives in you. And he is the true Christ. I am his and he is mine. Is that your testimony today? I hope it is because if it's not, we pray that you'll believe and receive Christ before you leave this place, that you will see the true Christ. You will see, in just a minute, we'll see what he did for us on the cross. In order to stay with this stuff, we've got to keep our eyes on the true Christ, which is the Christ of the Bible. Quickly, number three, Paul says, I want you to see the radical change that's happened in your life. Now, now, pay attention very closely. Verses 11 and 12, he's writing to Christians and he is saying, this is what has happened in your life. In him, who's him? Who? Christ. In Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Man, those are some great verses. Look at me in verses 11 and 12. Paul reminds them of what it's like, what happens when you are truly saved. This is what has happened in you. Let me give the counter to that. If this has not happened in you, then there is no salvation. Because when you get saved, everyone has a change of direction in their life that happens through the power of God at the moment of conversion. When you are saved, there is an inward change that takes place in your life. Paul illustrates that by the Jewish practice of circumcision done on every male on the eighth day. In more than one place in the New Testament, he talks about the circumcision of the flesh up against the circumcision of our heart. Here, he talks about a circumcision that is not done with hands, but it is the putting off the body of the flesh. And this happens because of the circumcision of Christ. When Christ died on the cross and he breathed his last breath and he died for you and for me, Paul said that is the moment of the circumcision of Christ where the bondage of sin is broken in our lives. Where we are set free by his grace. Now, the sin nature is not eradicated. No, it's not. But the sin nature, according to Romans chapter 6, is kept in check because of the circumcision that takes place in my heart. The Bible says that we have a stony heart. We have a hard heart. That we reject God. We reject his ways. We reject his principles. That's why David prayed, God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. When you get saved, there is a heart change. There's a heart change. A change that takes place. Now watch. In this, in this matter of circumcision, there's a Jewish flavor to this statement. And I want to kind of for just a second parallel it with Romans chapter 2 verse 28 where Paul said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Okay? Paul is saying your Jewishness is not just because you got circumcised. 
Well, why is he saying that? I'll tell you why. He was, he's showing them that practice and ritual does not save you or change you. you you're, not a, you're not a Christian. You're not a, full, you're not a full Jew because you get circumcised and, and you're not a Christian because of any practice that you do. In Romans 2.28, he said, a Jew is supposed to be one that is inward because of a circumcision of the heart. You see, spiritual circumcision is a matter of your heart that is done by the Holy Spirit and not by the letter of the law. There is a spiritual cutting away of the flesh. Paul said there is a spiritual circumcision not done by hands, but through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Make a note, 187 times in the New Testament, the word actually there, not made with hands, is, is put together in the original unhandmade. Unhandmade. You know what that word means? It means this is a work of God and not a work of man. Now, how do we apply that in 2019? It's very simple. You can take communion at the church every time we have it and be lost as a golf ball in high weeds. That's fresh on my mind because I played on Friday. You can be baptized in every church in this town and be lost without Christ. You can work your way in and get your name on the church membership roll and be lost and on your way to hell. Why? Because salvation and conversion is not something done by man. It is done by God when he changes your heart and he radically changes your life. And verse 11 and verse 12 are just so beautifully connected together. Because once you have a circumcision of the heart, Paul reminds them of the very first thing they did after their salvation. And it's what we as Baptists believe that you ought to do, that I ought to do at the moment you get saved. He says, we've been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. Now watch, this is important. The language the authors say show a very real coinciding event that happens. Paul is reminding them of something that coincided with their salvation and their conversion. We see it all through the New Testament. It's the mode of public water baptism. There is a baptism that takes place, spiritually speaking, when you get saved, where you are baptized into Christ. But there is also a public proclamation of what it means when you have been saved to let the world know that you want to follow Jesus. It's the same thing in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 4 where Paul connects our being buried with Christ. That's why when we baptize here at the church or out in the ocean, we always say buried in the likeness of his death and raised again to walk in newness of life. Why do we baptize that way? It's not human tradition. It's what we believe God says in his word. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? So we get baptized. And scholars did a lot of reading this week. They say that Paul is pointing them back to this step, this public step that they took of when they received Christ. James Dunn said, that said that baptism is our conversion initiation. I love that. 
It's when you come in front of the body and you say, I want to follow Christ and I want to obey Christ. I want to take the steps. Now hear me for just a minute. This is, this is so important because I think last Sunday we baptized and we've got some more that need to be baptized and I need to teach this and keep this in front of everybody. When we talk about the scriptures and we talk about human tradition, I must say that in my 28 years of ministry, I've had some who, who wanted me to baptize their children or baptize their infants. That might have happened to some of you in the room. It's happened over and over again through the years in our church. And I have to always say kindly and graciously that if you can show me in the scriptures where that is appropriate, I would be happy to do that. But the conversation very quickly goes to tradition, family. This is something we've always done. This is a practice. My mom and daddy, my grandparents did it, and so I did it, and right on down the line. There are others who've come to me before and said, you know, pastor, I'm, I don't mind getting baptized, but I just don't want to get in the water. I remember years ago we had a lady, she was just scared of water, and it took us a few months to just say, we're not going to let you drown, I promise. We're not going to let you drown. So I don't have a room in my theology or in my Bible practice. If you found it in there, please come show it to me. And I don't say that sarcastically. I mean it. I've read the scriptures and I've studied the scriptures. And there is nowhere in the Bible where it says anything about being sprinkled or a little cup of water being put on your head. It's not in there. So we're the Baptists, right? <laughs> we're the baptizers. And we believe that when Christ comes into your heart and into your life as a matter of obedience to Christ, as a matter of a testimony of change, Paul says you got baptized to show that through the power of God, you have been raised from the dead. Is there, a bigger, is there a bigger picture than salvation being a dead person being brought to life? Let, let me help you for just a minute. In my years of ministry, I've had, you know, I've had conversations with people talking about their conversion and their salvation. And I, I promise you, I do not mean this in any way to be condescending at all. But these are some of the types of things that I've heard through the years. You know, I remember one time, man, my grandma died and I was 16. And I remember I just stood there and I just cried and cried and cried. I cried when my grandmother died too, right? Come on now, I'm not being condescending. I'm trying to help you for a minute. Because you got all emotional when your grandmother died, that doesn't equate to salvation. Okay? People say, man, I was in my room one night and, man, this bright light came up and I know it was an angel. I know it was an angel because I'd made a bad grade on a test that day and I just needed something. We're, we're laughing, but, but just hold on a minute. I've heard stories like that. I've heard stories of, are you, hey, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Man, one night I had a dream and Jesus Jesus came to me and I saw Jesus and I talked to him. And man, when I woke up the next morning, I felt so much better. I'm not going to question your dreams or debate that at all. But listen to me. That does not equate to acknowledging that you're a sinner, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and confessing him as Lord. It's not the same thing. 
Just please hear me. When you stand before the Lord one day, I want you to think about telling him those stories as a reason to let you into heaven. When he has given us his word that says believe, trust, follow, receive, press in, go after Christ. When you get saved, there's a radical change. Let me finish in verses 13 to 15. He wants them to see the radical change. But the main thing he wants them to do is to see the power of the cross. See the power of the cross. This is so good. And you who were dead in your trespasses, you were trapped in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Man, look at this next phrase. God made alive together with him. Look at what he's done for you, Christian. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, he has canceled the record of debt. Spiritually speaking, because of my sin, I had rang up an amazing spiritual credit card that I could never pay off. It's legal demand stood against us. That's the shape that you're in before you come to Christ. But notice what Christ does for those who believe and receive him. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that great? Think about what Jesus did for you on the cross. And when he did that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, real quick, there's a lot of discussion about 8 and 15. Is this talking about demonic powers? Is this a discussion over the spiritual wickedness in high places? And whether it is or isn't, we know that that ties into what's going on all around us it coincides with this statement, there is a battle for truth. And I want you to know, God sent you here today for me to tell you that we are not losing. We're not losing. Because the, the war has already been won. It was won on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. It's over. It's done. We are now living today from victory to victory. If you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs and singing, hold the fort, I just hope Jesus comes soon. You're not living in victory because we have the victory and that victory is in Christ. And so now we're soldiers in the army. We're soldiers in the army of the king and he wants us to be engaged in the battle that we won't back up that we won't change, that we will stay in the truth. I love what Jerry Rankin says about spiritual warfare. Look on the screen. Spiritual warfare is not so much about demon possession, territorial spirits, or generational bondage as it is overcoming Satan's lies and deceits in our own life. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a cheat. And we need to be alert to what's going on around us. Now in this battle for truth, and I'm done, there are some things that just aren't worth fighting over. 
Is that, is that a fair statement? There's some things that are not worth fighting over. But truth is not one of them. <laughs> Jesus is not one of them. We should stand for him. We should declare that he is the only way. Two or three weeks ago, I got an email in my inbox and I got invited to go to a meeting about addressing homelessness in our community. And so I, I looked at the email and I went through it and there was a, a link to a website. I clicked on that link to the website and began to read just a little bit. And, and then I noticed a little tab entitled Interfaith. <laughs> Interfaith. So I clicked on that tab for Interfaith and I began to read. And this is what I read. The Old Testament's book of Isaiah talks about opening our doors to the homeless. The New Testament instructs throughout the Gospels that we should show hospitality to strangers. In the Quran, believers are directed to help the destitute. Hindu texts advise that caring for the needy is the most auspicious gift of all. And the list goes on in every scripture. We're to care for those who have met misfortune, for those in need, for those who have lost their homes. We're proud in our affiliation <clears throat> to have mainline Protestants, synagogues, parishes, Latter-day Saints wards, non-denominational churches, Hindus, Buddhist, Baha, Sikh, and many other traditions are actively involved. And I want you to hear me. I want to get along with everyone. But we got to draw some lines. I'm not joining hands with the Buddhist and the Sikh and the Baha and the LDS or anybody else who does not believe that Jesus Christ is the way. We have to draw lines. Well, pastor, what, what can, listen, what good would it be for a Buddhist to help a homeless person find a job and go to work if they lead them into Buddhism? They're leading them away from Christ. You get the picture? You get the picture? I said, we are going to stand for, I'm not mad, I'm not angry, I don't want to have a bad disposition, but in this battle for truth, we will not apologize for believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And I trust and pray you know that. And that's settled in your heart. Can we pray together?